terror management, EMPs, and gay conversion therapy. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, that weekly podcast where I answer your questions about, well, just about anything I can, usually involving science. I'm your host, Mike McCart, known online as Science Mike. I'm an author, podcaster, college dropout researcher who tries to help people make sense of the world by not judging them. It's a lot of fun. What do you say? Let's get it started. Well, it wouldn't be Ask Science Mike if I didn't start out with announcements, would it? (laughs) Uh, Just one this week. On Monday, June 25th at 4 p.m. Pacific, I'm going to host a webinar. What's a webinar? That's a talk I give online. You'll be able to see me on video, and I'll be uh, answering your questions about public work. What do I mean by public work? I mean, people who are trying to communicate with the public. Uh, They might be teaching or driving people to action or affect change in our culture through things like blogs and podcasts, public speaking, writing books. All that stuff is under the big umbrella of public work. And what I've noticed is that there's a lot of people who want to engage in public work, but they don't know where to start. Or there's people who have been doing public work for a while, but it's not really going anywhere. Or there's even people who've built platforms with thousands or tens of thousands of people paying attention who can't figure out how to pay their bills. So this is a webinar for you if you're in that box of people. It's called Making Your Mark. You can register for free uh, by going to mikemccarg.com slash webinar or just going to asksciencemike.com and clicking the events button because I know my last name is hard to spell. And you can register, and you can participate in the webinar. You can come in. You can ask your questions, and uh, I'll answer as many as I can. And we will record this webinar. So if you're not able to be there, uh, you can check it out after the fact just by registering at the same spot, okay? Uh, This will also lead to a group coaching program I'm launching with a friend of mine. So the webinar will be free. If you need more than semi-regular webinars, (laughs) I will have a group coaching coaching program that is fee-based. You'll have to pay to be a part of that, Uh, but it'll be personalized attention in a group setting for people who aspire to do public work. I did one of these already. It was really successful, except I didn't record it and I didn't follow up. So here we are in summer. My event schedule slows down and I've got the time to embark on this project and do a 10-week course for those who are interested. If that's you, again, asksciencemike.com. Click on events and look for Making Your Mark, a webinar. Hey, Science Mike. My question for you today is about sex and what the Bible says about sex before marriage. Uh, Growing up in the evangelical faith tradition, I was always taught that sex before marriage was wrong. And my views about sex were really unhealthy. I associated sex with sin and guilt and shame. And in Christian culture today, I feel like there's so much pressure put on women, especially, to remain pure and chaste 
until they get married. And I have a problem with that. One, because it's sexist. But two, you know, why should women wait? It can be so difficult for a woman to achieve orgasm after she becomes sexually active. And I've heard from other women who waited until their wedding night to have sex who were traumatized because they didn't know what to expect or because it was just painful or because they bled and it was not a positive, pleasurable experience. Now, I personally cannot attest to that because I did not wait until my wedding night and I don't regret it at all because my wedding night was really good. We had had lots of practice by that point. From what I know about the biblical marriage tradition, you know, it's when two people become one. And there's, you know, lots of other definitions, but they're a a little bit vague. And marriage today is so different. You You go to the courthouse, you get the marriage license, you have the ceremony, you sign the marriage license, and then boom, you're married. You get to have sex. You have the I can band. My question is, how does the biblical marriage tradition translate to our modern marriage tradition? At what point do two people become one? At at what point is it okay for them to have sex without feeling like they're sinning against God? I mean, is it when they say, I love you? Is it when they decide they want to get married? Do two people become one when they get engaged or when they have the ceremony? Is it when they sign a legal document? I would love to know your thoughts on all of this. Thank you so much for listening to my question. I really appreciate all that you do. Uh, I love your podcast and the Liturgist podcast. They both really changed my life. Uh, So keep doing what you're doing. Thanks. Well, first, I would point you to a two-part episode of the Liturgist podcast called The Ethics of F star 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 ING, where we talked about sexual ethics and how we form sexual ethics uh, in like... I don't know, three hours (laughs) across two episodes. Um, And so you may find a lot of information there that you find helpful or useful. And I know I'm going to catch a lot of flack with how I, with this next statement, but it's tough to take the kind of reductionist modernist thinking we use to make moral decisions and investigate scientific claims and apply it to the Bible since the Bible is pre-modern. Here's what I mean. If you keep following that, like, when do two people come one and trying to set these criteria? uh, Well, if we really want to be rigorous about that, the answer is never, never, ever do two people become a single person biologically, psychologically. That's not a thing, right? So you're taking this kind of holistic idea to become one. I would dare even say a poetic idea and then tearing it apart using modernist empirical inquiry or at least Socratic inquiry. And it, it, to me, it comes apart. Now I know a lot of you disagree with me. I think it's great that you disagree with me. (laughs) I can only answer from my perspective on this podcast. And in my perspective, following the rabbit hole or the rabbit trail, whatever that colloquialism is, this idea of two become one in specific diagnostic criteria isn't helpful, and in general, not the most helpful way to read the Bible. Um, When I am letting the Bible, or when I ask the Bible to inform something in my life today, 
that's a complex process. If I look at biblical marriage, so-called biblical marriage, there really is no single thing that's biblical marriage. You can make a really easy case that marriage evolved and changed dramatically over the arc of the Bible. There's places in the Old Testament where it's perfectly okay and, in fact, ordained by God to kill an enemy combatant and then marry his wife, which sounds barbaric to us, but was better than enslaving his wife. You can marry more than one woman in parts of the Old Testament. You can rape an unmarried woman, pay a fine, and then marry her in the Old Testament. Those would all be ideas which are about marriage in the Bible and therefore biblical marriage. But today, do we think it's moral or good or just to rape an unmarried woman, pay a fine, and then take her as your bride? Of course not. Why? Because our understanding of marriage has changed. Now, you do see a a significant shift in the New Testament, especially with Paul, in perspectives on marriage and language around marriage. But that's largely in contrast to the dominant Greco-Roman traditions, which are different than marriage today. We can't look at Paul and think about Paul writing to Americans. Paul was not. Paul was writing to an early church in a Roman empire that was heavily Hellenized. It was highly influenced by Greek thought and philosophy. We got to remember the Bible is not one book, and the Bible does not have one author. We cannot read the Bible like modernists and expect it to make any sense. Not a single word, letter, or piece of punctuation in the Bible was written in English. Not a single bit was written to Americans today. We are removed from these writings by millennia, by language, by cultural norms. And we need to be cognizant of that when we read the Bible. And so I actually don't think the Bible directly informs marriage and romantic relationships today at all. There we go. I've just opened myself up to so many emails. I don't care. Now, I don't say that the Bible doesn't inform marriage today or relationships today. It does not directly inform them. There's this indirect informant happening, this indirect relationship between the biblical narratives about marriage and modern marriage, like there are with so many issues. We do see that the Bible attempts to be progressive on marriage, that it tends to offer women dignity in the culture they didn't have in contemporary circumstances, for example. We notice that the Bible seems to have a focus on fidelity and commitment, and those things I think are still important. We see in the Bible an attempt to establish marriage as something that allows mutual flourishing and stability in a cultural context. Here's the thing. I'll lay my cards on the table. I think hookup culture can be really damaging. I think some people have a casual enough relationship to sexual partnerships that it causes them physical or psychological harm. Not everyone. I'm not saying hookup culture is immoral or you're broken or damaged if you've had multiple sexual partners. Biologically speaking, virginity is not a thing. It's not a thing I'm worried about. I don't have some 
great concern over my daughter's purity. I actually find that notion kind of silly and old-fashioned. What I do care about with my daughters and myself and my wife is do we engage in relationships and sexuality in a way that honors everyone participating, that is good for our physical and mental health, that is mutually beneficial. So while hookup culture can absolutely be damaging, so can traditional marriage. There's an awful lot of divorces out there. There's an awful lot of affairs. Our relationship to commitment seems to be primarily one of obligation, and that's not sustainable. I am not married to my wife. I'm not in a monogamous arrangement out of a sense of obligation. If I were, I would ask for a divorce and move on. I'll be honest. I wish I would have had fewer sexual partners in my life. Many fewer. Many, many fewer. I did not approach sex in a healthy manner because I was expressing a pressing physical need and medicating psychological woundedness using sex in a way that left me feeling empty and sad and depressed. That does not sound like two becoming one to me. I would basically, using charm and charisma, ask women to be the salve on my feelings of insecurity and fear and loneliness that came from being a bullied child. And after I did so, I would experience crippling guilt as a person who believed that I just betrayed my best friend Jesus. That's a messed up approach to sex and sexuality. That is not two becoming one. So I have found that I'm most satisfied, most healthy, and most able to be a person who gives back in a relationship, in the context of long-term committed monogamy. That's probably not for everybody, but that is for me. And I think if you're wondering when do two become one, you know when two become one because you felt it. Two become one when you have an investment, an emotional investment in the other person's well-being and flourishing. When their feelings and their pleasure and their life experiences matter to you as much as your own. That doesn't mean you ignore the self. To become one doesn't mean you erase your identity or your needs or you allow patterns of exploitation or abuse. That's a parasite, not mutualism. To become one is a symbiotic relationship. It can be romantic. It can be sexual, but to my asexual and aromantic listeners who find themselves in fulfilling relationships, I don't think to become one requires sex whatsoever. To become one is when we enter into stable, committed, loving relationships. So my wife is not my property, as you see in Old Testament marriage. And I don't rule over her like you would see described in New Testament marriage, but I very firmly believe and experience that two become one between me and my wife. What about you? What about anyone else? I don't have a simple pat answer 
from the Bible or anything else. I can share with you a few guidelines that I use, and if they're helpful, we'll carry them along with you. Honor yourself and don't suppress or deny your needs. Be careful with the biology and emotional attachment involved in relationships. Do the work to know yourself. That can involve therapy. That can involve shadow work. And when you are committed, honor that commitment with fidelity. That's all I've got to say on the subject. The older I get, the less comfortable I feel telling other people they should live their lives as I have lived mine. The less comfortable I feel telling other people to read the Bible as I do. This life is a journey and a great adventure. And part of that adventure, I believe, is falling down and skinning your knee, maybe even breaking your leg and walking with a limp, but still walking into that great adventure. What you're looking for in relationships is someone who can enjoy that adventure with you, not telling you which way to go, not following you blindly, but embarking together on the great journey of life. Our next question came from email, and it reads, Hey, Mike, I'm curious about the science of EMPs. That's electromagnetic pulses, everyone. I've heard that it is fairly likely that at some point in the next 50 years or so, we will be hit with a solar EMP large enough to do catastrophic damage to the world's electrical systems. What causes these events and what all would be affected? Is it all electronic devices or are some devices less prone to failure? Can we just reboot things like computers or are they destroyed? Would a big one wipe out the whole Earth's electrical grid or just the side facing the sun at the moment it hits? Is there anything humanity can do to prepare for one? Thanks for all you do. This is a great question, one I am a little cautious about. There's some people who go pretty nuts about EMP in the prepper community. That's people who are preparing for the end of human civilization. But EMPs, solar EMPs especially, are a genuine concern. They do happen. And in fact, some experts believe that a carefully targeted nuclear device that was detonated near the ionosphere could create an EMP that impacted most of the American grid with a single nuclear explosion. And of course, solar EMPs are electromagnetic pulses. These are basically supercharged particles uh, and energetic electrons moving through space. Have happened. 1859, a solar flare overloaded the telegraph system and set paper messages on fire that were in the system. And in July of 2012, a solar EMP coming from a solar flare missed the Earth by only about a week's orbit around the sun. And that one would have been really bad. Now, to your question, with a solar EMP, yes, the side of the Earth facing the flare when it arrives is going to be much more impacted than the other side of the globe. However, uh, the energy from an EMP could travel along the grid. And that's the first point. The main risk from an electromagnetic pulse, nuclear or solar in origin, is to our electrical grid. We don't have definitive answers about electronics because there's too many variables 
involved an electromagnetic pulse. It's amplitude, it's frequency, it's distribution. We can't make definitive answers about what would be affected and how much. We know in almost any significant EMP event, the power grid is the most impacted. Some tests have shown that even many or most modern cars would be fine. Cars have a lot of shielding. The electronics in cars are more shielded than the electronics in your phone, for example, because they deal with really harsh conditions every day. Uh, Anything that's plugged into the grid would potentially be damaged by power surges. So even if your phone would have been fine because it was indoors or even fine outside, if it's plugged in at the time of an EMP, it could be destroyed by a power surge. And anything that's damaged in such a manner uh, is, is probably the circuits in there would have to be replaced. And in the case of most portable electronic devices, it's cheaper to replace the whole thing. So this is, you know, we don't know. We don't know how bad electronics would be impacted. Many experts believe that battery-operated electronics would probably not be meaningfully impacted if they were indoors and not plugged into the grid. The grid would be in real trouble. Now, we can prepare for that and should be at the governmental level preparing for solar flares and EMP using techniques like Faraday cages. Faraday cages are metal structures which do a very effective job at blocking radiation. Um, There's other techniques as well that we can use. There's nothing you as an average citizen can do other than communicating with policymakers that you think this is a real concern and that you think that we should spend money on it. Uh, You'll get the most impact talking to local legislators about your local grid. And then you can follow up at the federal level about funding, perhaps, Uh, because it absolutely could happen that we get hit with a solar flare driven EMP. Like I say, July 2012 was the, was a very was very nearly a bad time for us, meaningless species. Now my advice to you as an individual, you should be prepared for a solar flare, but you shouldn't do anything special for a solar flare. You should be prepared for natural disasters in general. Uh, in the event of significant natural disasters, you may have a week or more where any and all government services, including fresh water being piped into your house, are unavailable. So guidelines recommend at least one week's food and water per family member, including pets, should be present at your home at all times. Uh, That will protect you from the fallout of an EMP, from a hurricane, from a tornado, from flooding. You see what I mean? Like just there's lots of situations, earthquakes, no matter where you're in the country, There is some kind of possible natural disaster and having supplies ready not only protects your family, it actually protects everyone because it gives government resources and response organizations less mouths to feed immediately. So the more people are prepared, the more we minimize a crisis. And I'm not talking about stockpiling guns and, and the crazy things I see in the prepper community. I'm talking about a week or two of food and water in your home. That's it. And that's probably the best and most reasonable precaution you can take as an individual to prepare yourself not only for a solar flare that creates an EMP, but natural disasters in general. Hello, Mike. My name is Will, like your biggest fan. Um, My question for you is about the terror management theory 
um, the terror of management theory suggests that our need for religion and God is based off of our fear of death. Um, I would love to hear more about that and what you have to say about that. Thank you for all you do. Uh, I think terror management theory is really interesting, much like string theory. It's really interesting. And much like string theory, terror management theory isn't widely accepted as fact among scientists in its area of description. Um, It's using the capital T here, uh, but don't let you see that capital T as thinking terror management theory or string theory are on par with the theory of evolution via natural selection in terms of widespread experimental and observational support and widespread acceptance among scientists. And I think it's important to note that terror management theory describes a huge number of human behaviors uh, and, and ascribes them to fear of death, not just religion, national identity, all sorts of rituals, all sorts of core beliefs in this psychological model come down to us dealing with existential dread being a species who is aware we can die. And again, I think it's really interesting. Uh, Unlike string theory, terror management theory actually does make some predictions that have experimental support. There's a fascinating relationship between self-esteem, for example, and moral responses in terror management theory, and they are supported. So, you know, I think that's interesting. Uh, And when Oxford studied beliefs about God in a very large research project, they basically uh, ascribed three cognitive factors as being essential in how we form beliefs about God. And one of those factors was that humans have an inability to contemplate the cessation of their own consciousness. They don't call that a fear. They call call it a basic inability. We can't imagine not being conscious one day, and that helps create beliefs about the afterlife, even among secularized societies where more than half of people believe in some form of conscious experience that persists after death, an idea that seems to be remarkably at odd with those people's professed materialism. So that's psychology being psychology. So if you add a fear component to that, sure, I could totally see terror management theory being a a genuine part of our human psychological makeup and response. So if this was Mythbusters, I'd call this one plausible, but I wouldn't necessarily call it confirmed. Um, if you'd like to read more about terror management theory, I'd encourage you to check out Fear, Death, and Politics, What Your Mortality Has to Do with the Upcoming Election, which is a piece in Scientific American, which I'll leave in the show notes on AskScienceMike.com. All right, our last question is an email question, and I'll read it now. Hey, Science Mike. Love everything you do and your genuine care for people. My question is about stance on homosexuality. My old doctrine is just sort of hanging by a thread on traditional marriage stuff, but I can't seem to cut this thread. I'm currently in an environment where many people have been healed from their same-sex attractions or they've expressed that they're free from those desires. One in particular was an advocate for LGBTQ Christians at a university when she met a man who began sharing his views that maybe it's not God's best for her. He wasn't preaching to her, but generally shared what he felt that God told him. After a while, she prayed that God would show her the truth, and eventually she became attracted to this man and left her previous lesbian relationship to be with him. 
She felt this was an eye-opening experience to the truth of sexuality and her relationship with God. Another experience was a guy that was attracted to other men for, for most of his life, and only after seeking God on identity and hopes to find the truth of God, himself and his sexuality, not the stereotypical praying the gay away, he felt his attraction change to be for women and is now happily married. These are just two examples of the many I've heard from this environment at Bethel Church in Redding, California, that really goes after identity and seeks God's supernatural power to walk in the truth of who they are. My question is, if it's holy and good and beautiful for two people of the same sex to be together, why would there be these changes in people seeking their identities in God? Why would God heal them if it was good in his eyes for them to find a partner of the same sex? Also, this might be overused, but it's still a thread that's holding me back from changing my mind. Our physical bodies just seem to be made for male and female sex. Also, no procreation can happen without sex. This isn't as much a problem to me in the argument because of the presence of intersex people, but it still holds some weight. I hope this doesn't seem ignorant, but I'm truly trying to learn and to be open to the Holy Spirit on this. Thanks so much. Uh, Well, the first thing I'd like to say is thank you for asking a question that is honest and sincere. And I also thank you for showing a sensitivity and an understanding that this type of question can be hurtful and harmful to members of the LGBTQIA community. But that's what this podcast is for. I want there to be a space for people to ask honest questions about things like sexuality in a space that hopefully we minimize the harm of doing our work and understanding uh, to people who actually are members of the LGBTQ community. Uh, Obviously, I'm more comfortable addressing this question as an ally of those people than I would be were I a gay man or a bisexual man. And so we can have a conversation with each other as straight people and as Christians, uh, and I'm not judging you for where you are because I used to be in the same place. The first thing I would say, honestly, is I've known people who struggled with their sexuality specifically at Bethel Church and who have gone through tremendous heartbreak, trauma, and social ostracization from that community as they attempted to work through their identity in a way that did not help them feel closer to God, but in fact nearly destroyed them psychologically. I don't doubt that many people at Bethel or many people in non-affirming communities all over America and across the world genuinely have good intentions and genuinely believe that they are honoring God, but the outcome of that is people who have been so deeply hurt and so deeply rejected that they wish to take their own lives, and how is that of God? How is that God's truth? How is God's truth gay men out of a feeling of religious identity marrying women, suffering sexual dysfunction, having children, and eventually having families break apart because that marriage should have never existed in the first place, to me, that is a counter to the stories that you've just told. 
Because for every one story where someone through a religious experience changed their sexual identity, there are 10 stories of failed relationships and broken families. Because the data tells us changing your orientation doesn't work. Sexual orientation is complex. And it's a psychological phenomenon, not a biological phenomenon. I I can't find much good science that supports the idea that gay people or straight people even exist in the first place biologically. (laughs) I mean, it's just not there. Have we considered the possibility that when we have these seemingly successful outcomes of people changing their orientation in response to religious convictions, that we're talking about people who were bisexual in the first place? Of course, bisexual people often experience waves in their attraction based on people's gender. Sometimes they're more attracted to women or can be men, sometimes more attracted to women. And I'm not speaking universally for people who are bisexual. Some people truly uh, only respond based on the person. But I, I, know, I know many bi people who have told me they go through seasons where they're more attracted to men or more attracted to women. And that's not a gay person. That's not a lesbian becoming a straight person. That's a bisexual person exploring part of their natural psychosocial orientation. We have to consider that possibility that most of, many or most, of the, quote, successful, unquote, conversions in orientation and religious contexts are simply people who should have identified as bisexual in the first place. And this idea that our bodies are made for male-female sex exclusively, someone should really notify the rest of the animal kingdom where same-sex interactions are common across the animal kingdom, from invertebrates all the way up to primates, same-sex interactions, sexual interactions, are incredibly common. If our bodies are made for male-female sex, why do so many women experience pain during penetrative sex? If our bodies are made for male-female sex, why do many people have difficulty engaging in sexual intercourse? If our bodies are made only for procreation, why do people have sex after menopause? Why do people have sex who are physically unable to have children? Because sex is an act of intimacy and bonding and not simply a matter of reproduction. Procreation happens without sex all the time, just not with humans or mammals, but across the animal kingdom, plenty of procreation happens without sex. I hope that as you contemplate this issue, you would investigate the science of sexuality and the cultural context the scriptures were written in. But no matter where you land on a a Christian acceptance of same-sex marriage, I hope you could at least see the genuine harm that has been done to lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, intersex, and asexual people as well-meaning Christians have tried to help people turn away from the ways in which they experience love 
and intimacy. Because I don't think that's of God, and I don't think that's holy. I think it just ends lives and causes suffering. That's another Ask Science Mike. Thanks for listening. Um, I want to thank Andrew Galucky for pre-production, Greg Nordine for production, my patrons on Patreon for funding the show, and for picking the questions. Jeb Botiford, thanks for writing the theme song. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.